1: It's going just fine. Recording the 31st episode of anything in particular today? I think we are. I think it's happening right now, during the Super Bowl. The 31st episode of the Cinematography Podcast, recorded on Super Bowl Sunday, because neither of us gives a crap about sports. (laughs) Well, yeah, that's true.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So, so yes, we did not spend all day shoving nachos and guacamole in our face and shouting at the TV. Okay. I
1: I can shove guacamole in my face and not watch... People give themselves uh, brain damage all day long. You
2: know what's wonderful about the Super Bowl, though? No traffic in L.A. Oh, man. (laughs) It's totally
1: empty. It's so amazing. It's like an Oktoberfest in downtown Miami Beach.
2: I I was going to say it's like Rosh Hashanah here, (laughs) (laughs) which is also a day when, like, there's
1: no traffic. It's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) So, Ilya, this this will forever in cinematography podcast lore be known as the year that you started doing lots and lots of interviews because – I had a baby. That's right. And, and uh, so, who do we have on the show today?
2: Oh, we have uh, the multiple Academy Award-nominated editor Barry Alexander Brown. I'm so jealous. It's the first time that we've actually had a editor here on the podcast, I believe. Like, or officially had like the episode air. I think we have maybe another one in the can right now. But he's fantastic. He was nominated for his work on Black Klansmen. Sweet. Black Klansman, fantastic Spike Lee movie, and uh, amazing, amazing editing, of course, in that as well. Well-deserved nomination.
1: And it's a Spike Lee movie that, like, you know, I think might uh, might actually go the distance for the Oscars. He might win some Oscars on this one. I don't want to jinx it, but man, is it great. Do I, we have the power to jinx a Spike Lee movie? I really don't think
2: we do. I, I don't think so. But, you know, I've watched it twice now, and uh, I loved it even more the second
1: time so uh so without further ado let's go ahead into our interview with barry alexander brown
2: the cinematography podcast interview barry alexander brown thank you so much we're here at the uh Beverly Hilton in Beverly Hills, California. And uh, you have a long career in this industry as an editor, but also as a director. And I even saw a cinematographer credit on your your IMDb. (laughs) But uh, congratulations on your second Academy Award nomination, this time for Black Klansman, which uh, one of my personal favorite movies of the year. thanks. It's great to hear. Yeah, I'm very much looking forward to diving into that. But uh, you've worked with Spike Lee a lot. And I think that maybe the best way to start off this interview is to talk about your working relationship with Spike, with Spike Lee. You've done Twenty Fifth Hour, Inside Man, Black Klansman, Do the Right Thing, amongst others. Uh, Malcolm me, X. Malcolm X. Yeah. T- tell me what like this. Uh, tell me what a Spike Lee production and you is like. Tell me about like that that working relationship. How d- well, how
0: d- I have uh, I have a very special relationship with Spike. Spike and I go way way back. Uh, we met each other almost thirty eight years ago. Wow. The summer of 1981. Uh, so Spike was at NYU at that at that time. I I had just done my first film called The War at Home. That's the other Oscar nomination that I'd gotten. But still, I was pretty young and still pretty green. And Spike and I came up together at NYU. If he was working on something, he asked me to help out. I helped out. If I was working on a, on a doc in those early 80s, you know, sometimes I asked Spike to help out. And so when he finally did his first film, She's Gotta Have It, he asked me, will you work on it, will you do the the sound editing? Because I was the only one he knew who knew anything about sound editing. And the only reason I knew anything about sound editing was because I couldn't afford to hire anybody. I couldn't afford to hire an editor or sound editor, so I had to do it myself and learn. And so he knew I could do a cue sheet at -hmm. least, right? And do the basic stuff. And so, and so he asked me, you know, hey, when your buddy is actually doing a feature film, you say yes. Yeah. And <laughs> I didn't even know what the film was until, until he was calling me in to look at cuts as, uh, you know, through the winter of 85 and 86. And then he asked me to edit one scene in the film because he was having a hard time with this one scene. 'Cause he was the editor of that movie. Mm-hmm. Like like me, he he had hired himself because <laughs> yeah, that he, was the level because he could afford himself. <laughs> he could afford it himself. <laughs> yes. And so um, and so for us, we were learning together. And we were learning from on the job work, just you know, doing it. And I, and to some extent learning from each other. And I think to some extent influencing each other in terms of what each of us thought worked uh, in terms of cinema. I mean, we both had our own opinions about about movies and as cinema, as you always do. Yeah, yeah you yeah. always do. Mm-hmm. You know, but in so many ways, what what really pulled us together uh, as friends and then as co-workers was a very similar sense of movies and cinema and what we liked. And we both loved Broadway musicals. Mm. You know, uh, I, I grew up down south. You know, so in Montgomery, Alabama, if a if a if a touring show came through, it was almost always musicals. I'd go see it. And I just loved the musical form and he loved it too. His mother would take him actually to Broadway. Oh wow. And so at the time, you know, being an independent filmmaker in New York City and somebody who loved entertainment and loved musicals, most of the independent filmmakers scoffed at that kind of stuff. Hmm. I think we both Really liked that he was somebody else who didn't scoff at it, who enjoyed it and embraced it, and and uh, was wowed by it. Fantastic! So when you, when you get that phone call, when you get that
2: phone call, hey, it's Spike. It's time for you know we're, we want to do this other project here. Uh, I assume you start off by reading the script. You probably have conversations. Not with always? The, oh, not, not always. <laughs>
0: <laughs> not always Surprise uh, it, I, made, I made this Spike movie does call up and say it's Spike <laughs> he calls up Barry 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 I'm doing a sh- I'm shooting I'm shooting in August I want you to cut it okay <laughs> and, and then sometimes you uh, I'll get the script and and sometimes I won't until I show up and you know hey it's Spike man you know Mm-hmm. Uh, I I I love working with them.
2: Well, well, you guys have worked together so much. You guys must have this shorthand now too that you know oh. you know exactly. What, oh yeah, you, you guys very... know each e- exactly what each other's thinking, and and and. I mean, I know they say they say, there's nothing more heartbreaking than the first cut of a movie, but you understand exactly like where you have to go from A to B to C to get to to get to the and the, we, the, we, the finish we see the line. dailies yeah. together.
0: Mm. I don't cut until we see dailies together gotcha. for a scene, mm-hmm. and so then I really I have a pretty good idea of what he's thinking Mm -hmm. and how he's feeling about a scene, what he likes and what he doesn't like, and what I like and what I don't like. And so getting into that first cut, by this point, I have a pretty good feel for what this film is going to be about, what it should be about. Because my job as an editor is to deliver his vision. And even in the course of that, there's a lot of choices I make outside of that vision. Because that's is just what has to happen as an editor.
2: Well, well let's talk a little bit about this with uh, Black Klansmen. You you had a lot of different uh, a lot of different source material. You had uh, bits from Gone with the Wind, uh, mm. Birth of a Nation, mm. uh, news footage from the, the the Unite the Right rally march of in, in Virginia at the end of the film. Yeah. Plus all the stuff in the middle, uh, like this. Um, Fake documentary newsreel with Alec Baldwin the, at the beginning. there right. you got you got all these different elements that play that play together. Uh, w- what's your approach to a, to a project like this, where you've got so many different sources, so many different things, and it's a it's a unified feel through the whole thing. Nothing feels out of place. I mean, it feels. You're, that's your your job is to make all this this stuff that would might well, on the surface appear disjointed fit together like, perfectly. Like,
0: yeah. like if you take Birth of a Nation for yeah. instance, yeah. you know Spike came into the editing room one morning and, say, and said, you know, next week we're gonna shoot this Birth of a Nation scene where where the clans watching the Birth of, birth of a Nation and, and they're all cheering. And uh, I need something to project. So you gotta, you gotta give me a cut, a cut down. And it was, I don't know, something like, um, it had to be, because we were shooting in film, it had to be around 10 minutes, because that's the length of a 35 millimeter reel, maybe 11 minutes. So he said, I need 10 minutes. From birth of a nation so cut me that you know and so right from right even before they shoot i'm already involved in choices as to what parts of birth of the nation we're going to shoot with they're even going to react to and so and so i did you know i got you know we got a a digital copy of the film, and I cut it down to to ten minutes. And I don't think Spike ever even looked at that ten minutes until the day that they projected it. But listen, I I have a pretty good sense of of the kind of things he's going to want to go after.
2: Of course, I mean you you guys have worked together, you know, for for so many years and over thirty and, you know, years. And that's a that's a great scene too. I'm I'm glad you bring that up. That that the cross cutting between the Klansmen watching mm-hmm. birth of a nation right. and the story of Jesse Washington is it That's Je- right. I'm sorry That's was right. it Jesse Washington
0: I think it was yeah. oh, okay I,
2: I I don't I don't want to no, misspeak you're good. Here, but, you're really but yeah good. Uh, but know? yeah that that whole ju- juxtaposition between those two scenes where you have you know uh, the story being told of this horrible lynching and at the same time you know the the clan cheering over there it's like it's it's really it's really powerful stuff it's re- it really it's it it really puts in very stark relief the the wild differences between you know these these groups during the during the movie but then of course causes you to reflect which i think comes comes right back at the ending when you get to the the ending of the the movie oh my god it's like you know it's it's a chilling ending because uh you've established through the whole course of this movie Really, the threat that is the Klan. Really, that is the threat that is the uh, the white power movement and all that. It's it's a. Uh, it, I'm, I'm going to let you yeah, talk the about this. You, of you, hate. You t- yeah. the threat of hate. The threat of really, hate. Exactly.
0: Which comes in many different forms. It's not always just the Klan because the Klan is easy. Is an easy target, right? I mean, is the Klan really powerful these days? The Klan itself, probably not. But that kind of hate is powerful. You talked about the. Um, the cross-cutting between Harry Harry Belafonte and the Klan inducting their new members as well as watching The Birth of a Nation and then Harry Harry Belafonte talking about what it was like in America in 1915 to have that film come out and what a response and what a a big response it was even down to the President of the United States uh, saying great things about this movie.
2: Yeah, that's right. And this is just post turn of the century like 1915 1916. 15, yeah. yeah. Incredible. Yeah.
0: And and, and, then, and so and so I mean the job there was to was to take two very disparate scenes and then meld them into one scene, and emotionally into one scene. So where you have Harry talking about what a big response, and, and 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 that the president even called lightning in a bottle, and there in the early '70s in Colorado Springs, the Klan going crazy, as if they were an audience from 1915. Exactly,
2: like nothing, like like completely time out of place, like nothing. Time ad- out of
0: place, and, and also, as you said, we we come up to the present day. Yeah, none it, of these yeah. things are in the past.
2: No, not at all. You when you have. David Duke commending Donald Trump yeah. about, you know, yeah. he, here's the start of something new. And it's like, oh, God, it, I mean, all of that is just it's it it feels like a punch in the gut. It feels yeah. like, you know, it, it's. It's it's uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's wonderful you know what that's wonderful though that's why I think why people go to movies they want to they want to have uh, they, they want to be affected they, they want to exactly they want an emotion and they yeah. want an emotional response even if that's not an emotion that they're looking forward to having <laughs> but <laughs> I'm but I mean but,
0: exactly yeah. and and
2: I think that the audiences should be be You know, they should be pushed out of their comfort zone. I mean, it's really easy on the West Coast for I think a lot of people to ignore what was going on in Virginia. But uh, if you go to Black Landsman, you're not going to be able to do that. You're gonna you're gonna get you know a, a full dose of that, and you're gonna be. Shaken out of your, you know, your your comfort zone potentially. At least,
0: so. at least for that moment. Yeah. And hopefully that will have an effect.
2: I think so too. I think it sticks with you. I mean, I I think I I really do think that sticks with you. And I think there's a lot of people who will walk out of the theater or you know finish watching their their screener and they're gonna be like, oh man, and and they're gonna make the connection. They're gonna make the connection with Trump. They're gonna make the connection with uh, you, when, David
0: Duke. You know, Spike sent me out to show Focus mm-hmm. and Universal the mm-hmm. film in March we were heading full speed to get the film ready to even show to Can and hope hoping that we would get accepted to Cannes. But you still had to you still had to run, 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 run just to get it to a place where we show it to Ken. But at the same time we had to show it to focus. And I was the one showing it to them and, and I was in that room on those two screens at Universal. And I'm telling you, nobody said a word afterwards. They they got Jordan Peele walked by, shook my hand, and said, um, th- "Yeah, thanks," and, I, and then walked out. And I thought, "Oh no, this is not good. It's not good when you have a studio not saying a thing after a screening. It's usually a really, really, really bad <laughs> omen." And what's amazing? They they were just simply shook. They were emotionally moved and shook, and their response really came back and said, "We don't need a preview on this movie. We know what we got. We got something good, and we gotta go. We gotta head full speed for Cannes." And the very first audience to see the film was that that audience at Cannes, that first screening. Mm-hmm. So we hadn't shown it to anybody. Wow. Nobody saw it. Wow. I mean, when do you ever do a movie like that? Never. Never. <laughs> no. never. I don't remember the last time. The last time we did a, a film that we didn't do a preview on was She's Gotta Have It. And oh, yeah. that was just us finishing <laughs> the film however we could finish it, really. Uh,
2: you know, um, I, w- I want to ask you a couple other questions about uh, about the editing and working on, on Black Klansmen that um, – Maybe this just doesn't have the same sort of gravity as the stuff we were just talking about. But towards the beginning of the movie, when Ron Stallworth attends the first Black Power Youth Rally, when he shows up, there's all kinds of stuff going on when he's like... When he's in the audience and he's hearing right. the, the speakers, and it's like disembodied faces and mm-hmm. floating heads and mm-hmm. stuff, and, and through like black void, the you, yeah. Tell me a little bit about about that because it's a it's an engaging, powerful technique that's used there, and it's not something I expected. It it feels it it feels different than other parts of
0: the movie. T- tell me about. Oh, it maybe, definitely is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that whole sequence is different than the rest of the movie, and I remember when I read the script, and they had this eight-minute long. Speech by Kwame Ture, a character that is not going to reappear in the movie, and I was thinking at that moment, well, I re- I don't know how long this speech could finally go for when we when we have the edit. I mean, is it? Are we really going to go for eight minutes? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's long. Yeah, right. That's long, even if the character does reappear. Mm-hmm. I mean, when we did Malcolm X, did we have eight-minute-long speeches? I don't know what the longest speech was, but. My sense of it was—it certainly wasn't that long; or certainly not longer. But that was Malcolm delivering a speech. Malcolm is the main character. I mean, when we were in the editing room during that scene, both of us felt this thing—nostalgic thing, really. Of wow, we're back! We're back in Malcolm X. And it felt so good. It really felt for us, both of us, so good because we never expected in our careers that we would be back. And in that place again, Corey Hawkins does such a great job. He does. Oh it's my a, God! Yeah. You know, and and I and I'd cut that scene first, straightforward, All right. Just cut, getting it cut as a scene with a with a with a speech and an audience and and, and its effect on Ron Stallworth, and the, and it's, to some extent its effect on the two cops outside listening in. And then Spike said, okay we're going to put in the portraits now cuz he'd been he'd shot all those things yeah yeah but you know in a separate room while they were doing that that scene yeah. he he'd pull people out and go in and shoot and so but but there was i don't know 40 or so that they, that they shot you know the direction was sort of like you know look up to your left look up to your right a smile as if you heard something funny. <laughs> and so, yeah. so. But but you,
2: you can see like almost the metamorphosis in the characters during that scene too. Or yeah. yeah, I mean particularly Ron, it's like, oh he's like You do he, see he, that metamorphosis. You, he's like he did not know what he walked into. No, he and did then not. after that scene it's like, All right. Yeah. All right. So yeah. I think that's You it.
0: know, even you hear him say at one point earlier on, he goes, Uh, run right, right on, run right on. You know, <laughs> yes, exactly. He it's doesn't. Like, he doesn't he's, quite he, want to say right on, but he really con- does want to say right on. <laughs> he's convincing himself. Yeah, like <laughs> well, a, he's a been it's, touched. Yeah, yeah exactly. You no, know? exactly. and yet he feels like, oh no, I'm an undercover copier. here.
2: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? So yes. he's kind of he's ha- he's having a moment. Uh, it's it's such an incredible story. The the whole uh, Ron Stallworth and uh, of of course the the character uh, known as uh, Flip Zimmerman in the movie. Of who right. uh uh, th- there was no Flip Zimmerman. I know he was in the book referred to as Chuck. So r- really um, amazingly rich material to work with here when you're you're dealing with, uh, you know, stuff that's based on actual events and you've got this fabulous script to work from. Uh, as the editor, what, how do you approach doing justice to this? This I know you want to cut the best you possibly can, but I mean, this is a true story. There are moments in it, of course, that have this like uh, heightened, uh, like the portraits and in the in this, the Palmi right. Teray scene. But then also, there's uh, jump cuts. The first time that Adam Driver is rehearsing, his, that, his, his he's speech. trying to do.
0: He's trying to. He's trying to get Ron Star Wars' voice. That's right. And, I mean, see. Ron's idea is, if you can do James Brown, yeah, right. Yeah. I'm black and I'm forward. brown. Yeah. <laughs> you get, you know, maybe maybe you get close to my voice. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's just, you know, it's a it's a comic scene. Yeah, you know, um, it's fun. It's fun, and of course, Flip doesn't come anywhere close mm-hmm. to um, <laughs> to it. You know, and Ron, uh, I've heard Ron say that he was shocked that the Klan never really challenged him about not sounding like the white cop that shows up. He said, you know, I he said, not, I, I said, you know, really, I guess he felt lucky. Mm-hmm. You know, and at one time that they ever did challenge him, they said, you sound different. He said, yeah, I've got a cold. And they said, oh, yeah, yeah, I get those too. I got allergies. <laughs> and and uh, but he said it only had it only came up once. So even though they went out to, you know, in this scene, the scene in this comic scene, he, the, he goes out to to get flipped to sound more black uh-huh. right yeah yeah you know flip just is not and and adam <laughs> does such a great job there he does because yeah. you know he he, he delivers his stuff so sort of so awkwardly and so flat and
2: uh, well that's a great scene there too because like uh there's just hidden little jump cuts in there and so there's like clearly is this passage of time it's a it's a it's a wonderful little moment in in this movie and also uh you don't get a lot of comic relief. You get a little. You get a little splash here, a little splash there. But it's right. it's nice to have that that that, I mean, that there's moment. There's humor,
0: and yeah. definitely in the film.
2: Oh, of course, there's humor. but yeah. Uh, But yeah, it's nice to get the, those little moments. So, uh, do you have a a sequence in the movie that uh, that you're you're most proud of? Is there a part of the movie that you're that's your favorite? Or
0: you know, I, I have to say that the one that you talked about earlier with Harry Belafonte and with the, the cross clan yeah. induction and the birth of a nation that is satisfying. And and hey and so much fun and and I'm so lucky as an editor to be given a scene like that where you can just do stuff. It's not just a dialogue scene, you know. Um, you know, there's some very very well cut movies out there that may not appear to be particularly well cut, you know, because they're so dialogue driven. But when you get a film like like and, and many of the films I've done are like that. When you get a film like Black Klansman where you have so many different opportunities to let yourself go. You know, the Alec Baldwin thing at the beginning yeah. where he's clearing his throat, he's repeating lines, he's asking for the right for the right words to the script supervisor. That's right. You know, it's just fun and it's out there and you know, most of the time you'll do that scene that sequence and it would be very, very straightforward. Sure. But you know, Spike gave me my freedom. Go ahead. And he said Alex was doing all this stuff. Use it. And I thought, yeah, yeah, <laughs> all right. You just do it, and, and, and the first cut has got to be just, hey, I'm gonna have fun with this. Pretty much what I did was what Spike loved, and, and what we, I mean, we, you always tweak it, you tweak every scene, but but he pretty much loved what I did, and uh, well, and we went out, we went with it. Spike's
2: not the only one. Of course, you know, uh, people seem to have, re- have really loved what you did on this movie with another award nomination. It's fantastic. I want to talk to you about uh, a little bit more about this sort of collaboration because you, uh, that you guys have had over the years. I mean, I have to imagine your crew in, in the post side, you now have uh, a lot more people uh, working for you than you did back on Do the Right Thing. I mean, there's been a nice- No,
0: more people on Do the Right Thing.
2: More people on Do the Right Thing.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. there's less people now. There's less people. <laughs> No, on Do the Right Thing or any of the movies that we did in film, Uh, I had an assistant Mm -hmm. uh, with his or her assistants. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was a lot more people in those editing rooms back in the day with Do the the Right Thing and Malcolm X and Crooklyn and He (laughs) Guy Game and Summer of Sam. All these films that we were doing in film. It, it just—it
2: seems counterintuitive to me. It seems like as your budgets would increase, you'd you'd have more more hands, and
0: but Man, no, not, not, know, not with, the case. With the digital age, more and more, there's this sense that well, you don't. Know, who do you need? You don't need anybody. You know, you can almost do it on your own. You know, cut on your phone, as a matter of fact. You know, and and that's listen. I cut on Avid, which I love. If it weren't for Avid, it would be a hard job, I think. Um, it's a great media composer. It's a great application. I know it well. It gives me a lot of freedom to do a lot of things. But of course, everybody wants you to do more and more mm. as they think it's, it's, you can do everything. Oh, sure. You can do all the visual effects. You can do all the sound editing. And, and more and more you do it. But this is an offline system. Mm. And you know, back in the day when we were sh- cutting film, Nobody was asking me to do this, to uh, you, you know to to split the screen in two and you know and, and have these have and have these talk to each other. Yeah, yeah exactly. And how, yeah, exactly. I mean, how would you do that portrait thing? Oh my God. You know, I'll back back and you know, thirty years ago, yeah. you'd get a basic idea of it. But so, right. With the avid program, man, you can really do it. As a matter of fact, when Spike called in Randy Balsamart. The great visual effects editor in uh, in in New York City. He's worked on everybody's film. Has done a lot of our title sequences, yeah. uh, including including the title sequence for Black Klansman. And he pulled Randy in, and Randy, when he saw that sequence, he started talking about you know doing some other things with the with these floating heads than what I had done, because I had everything got laid out in terms of of what you see. The different individual portraits together, and brought him in, brought him out, moved him. So Randy was talking, and Spike said, "Uh, uh-uh, uh, no, 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 no. You see what we've done here? You see what Barry did? That's the way it's going to be. It just got to get cleaned up, <laughs> you know, because you know, you know, with yeah. any kind of offline system, uh, there's artifacts that that come along when you're trying to do these things. Sure, you know, th- it's not a it's not a finish, yeah, a uh, piece." And so, but but at this day and age, you know, you can get to this place where you can really show and really experiment with these kind of visual effects. And quite frankly, with Avid, I was able to do things that I would have never done in film. Mm. Um, There was, there is scenes there where there's a lot, there might be a lot of pause for business Mm. between actors. Mm -hmm. And that drives me crazy. Mm. I I hate all the business stuff. (laughs) I gotcha do. you know there's a scene at the waterfall mm-hmm. where ron and the fbi agent meet mm. right and there's one scene there's one moment where it's a sort of a medium wide shot and as ron talks he, in the original take ron delivers his line the fbi agent turns around gets this folder out of the car turns back and hands it to ron and talk to tell him about this theft Right To me, it's like, oh, give me a break. Huh. Give me a break. I cannot sit here while you do the business of getting that damn folder uh-huh. out of the car. So what I did was cut that scene in half. Ron on one side is delivering his line, and I have the FBI agent turn around, get that folder while Ron is talking. So by the time Ron finishes, he hands Ron the folder and says... That's perfect. And yeah. says, you know... <laughs> Yeah, there was a theft last night. That's right. right. It, I mean, you couldn't you wouldn't even think about doing that in, if we were in film. You wouldn't think about it. You would just say, "Oh, got to live with this." Whew. But there's a bunch of moments in that film that you won't see as anything at all. those, those moments of business. Yeah, that business, that, that, yeah. That, 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 now. that now like we see it's we speed it up. It'll yeah. be done while somebody's delivering the line and giving this information or whatever.
2: So, uh, going back just to the the size of your of your team now. So your team's gotten smaller, but are, you're being asked to do more. It sounds like you're you're yeah. prevising yeah. or you're putting yeah. together all these parts yeah. and pieces. Yeah. So you're so, asked to do more. so so budget goes up, number of people go down, and you're doing more. Yeah. Is, that, is that is that a good summary of of, of what's what's yes, required now today modern day for for an yeah, editor? Yeah, it okay, is, it is true. So, so you got to know, uh, you got to know uh, some audio editing. You got to know some VFX, some basic stuff, so you mm-hmm. can essentially create all of yeah. those things. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, the, you know, the cinematography podcast. We talk mostly to cinematographers, but we do talk to editors and to storyboard artists and to other people. Basically, people who have a real uh, opinion about what the visuals of a movie should be, or the construction of the movie, or, or you know, some sort of uh, understanding of the art and the craft. Often, I know that uh, DPs and editors don't necessarily have uh, don't necessarily have a lot of contact. No. They should have more. I think should have and, more. And you are tasked with making what someone did on set look fantastic. You know, sometimes weeks or months later. Months later. Uh, if you could create the ultimate DP in a laboratory, and that that you know was there to help serve you to make your life better, what what's one of those things that you would love to have the, the DP? Well, yeah,
0: What we used to do, we, we used to screen dailies mm. on almost a nightly basis back in the day. Malcolm X, do the right thing. That almost never happens anymore. That's a place where editors and directors and DPs are together, looking at the footage together and talking about it together. And that's happening in the midst of shooting. And I think that's a shame that we don't do this anymore, that people are looking at dailies on their iPads sometimes on their phones sometimes yeah. on their computers yeah but but there's no more screening of the dailies where you talk about it and talk about looks and talk about sometimes you talk talk about you know what's happening with costumes and hair and and, and if there's a problem that comes up because every once in a while there are problems that come up that you don't find right away there was a there was a problem on Black Klansmen that had to do with a a lens that had gotten uncalibrated, and it wasn't a, it wasn't so bad that I would even see it on my monitor on the avid. The projected but projected daily. But we projected. Yeah. When we projected it later, we were like, "What is this? Hmm. Wait a second, that's not sharp, hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm not blaming. I'm not blaming the the camera team. Hmm. Sure. You know, mm. but if, you, if that's the reason you should be projecting dailies so that when a problem like that comes up, somehow a lens has a problem, well, we know it now. And what lens is that? Okay, wait a second, get it fixed. And so maybe you've, maybe you've had a, a a day or two of shooting with that lens. You won't have a week. You won't have two weeks. You won't have six weeks. But in fact, on Black Clanson we did. Oh, wow. You know, and that uh, was a shame not to know that. Sure. And so, for me, I'm about to direct a film in Montgomery, Alabama. Oh wow! And we're we're projecting dailies. Mm-hmm. We're going to project dailies. Yeah, you,
2: you want to know exactly what you're getting?
0: Hey, I yeah. want that. Yeah. I want that feel when we're back when we're in a room. I want I want hair in there, especially in that first week or two. Mm-hmm. I want hair. I want costumes. I want makeup. I want DP. I want sound myself cuz i'm actually the editor of this film too so <laughs> well you you can afford yourself
2: ultimately any editor that you hire they have to you know compete against what would you want to I, I i see this with dps too when a dp often will step to direct it's like whoever they get to then fill those shoes they're always kind of like yeah you know what but just do it this way or no you know what i, I like what you're doing there. there there's a lot of there's a, i think there's a lot of uh, difficulty giving up control uh, it doesn't surprise me that you want to you want to cut to a, and Well,
0: my producers want me to cut Oh, My your producer's... Is well, cut. yeah, you, you, are, you are pretty good at it, so <laughs> you, might, you might as well do it. So. <laughs> uh, all
2: right, well, hey, this, this brings up... So you, you mentioned this new project. I, I don't know if you can talk about it at all. I can talk about yeah, it. Then, then tell, tell us what, what's next for you. What you what
0: it's you, a you, film you? called Son of the South. I wrote the script. It's set in Alabama in 1961. It's about this white guy from Root Alabama, southern Alabama, Uh, who's graduating from college in Montgomery. His grandfather, at that moment in time, was in the Klan in Birmingham. And a series of things happened in the spring and summer of that year. Some very, very famous things, like the Freedom Riders came and were badly beaten in a riot Mm -hmm. in Montgomery. And he ran down to that riot and pulled people out. Mm -hmm. And he's six feet tall, country boy, Mm -hmm. blonde hair, blue eyes. I mean, he looks like the rioters, right? Mm-hmm. But Apple it was pies. a series yeah, of yeah. things like that that were happening to Bob that challenged him. And even Rosa Parks had said to him around this time, something bad's gonna happen right in front of, in front of you someday. And you're gonna have to make a choice. Which side are you on? Because not choosing is a choice. Mm-hmm. Nobody gets a free ride. That's right. Nobody says, oh, you know, well, I just didn't choose. Mm-hmm. No, you chose all right. Yeah, no, that's right. It's a it's a film. I find it a very inspiring film. Uh, the character, Bob Zoner went on to be a big part of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, hmm. got arrested 18 times over the next five years. He was the real deal, Wow. the real deal. When, the, when SNCC kicked all the white people out in 1966, hmm. they came over to Bob and they said, you know, this doesn't mean you. <laughs> <laughs> right because he was on the front lines with everybody yeah yeah day in day out week in, week out year in year out yeah and so this is really just a story of what moved him and how he how he changed and what made him change and the steps that you take to change and there's a there's a nice big ending mm-hmm. uh, where they actually the clan and this is true mm-hmm. take him out to hang him oh wow and then finally don't hang him because he's a son of the South like them. Hmm. And, you know, can we really hang this boy from Alabama? Can we really do that? I mean, you know, they do horrible things to, to other people, but can they do that? And they couldn't quite cross that line. But for Bob, that was the final straw, you know. For me, if somebody had taken me out to hang me, I would be gone. Yeah. I'd be gone, gone. But Bob did exactly the opposite, hmm. which was, oh, I'm here to stay. I'm... And there's a lot of humor in the film. I grew up in the South, you know, I'm from Montgomery. And it gave it's gonna give me a chance to say things about the South that I grew up in, the old South, you know, as so, but but also to do a film that feels like the South. People talk like they're from the South. People joke like they're from the South. You're sure. gonna feel it. Yeah, yeah. You're gonna, it's going to have that ring of truth. And there's going to be, like in Black Klansmen, it's going to be a lot of humor. All right. And it's a very, very serious story. But but you're going to be laughing. I guess. And then there'll be a. Then it'll turn on you, just like that.
2: Well, it sounds like a great project. We're running really low on time, but I, I want to, you know, th- this project's amazing. It, it, I'm sure people want to follow the progress of it. Are you on any of the social webs? Do you Instagram or Twitter or, or Facebook or any of those things? And can people follow you somewhere? Is that Does that exist for you? Not yet.
0: Not yet. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> that, that, that's I'm sorry. Good, that's I, know, I know Spike says, Spike. Spike gives me a hard time. Spike gives me a hard time about this stuff, you know, about about not having any of these things set up. I know I have to. Well, we're just setting up. As a matter of fact, we're just only. I mean, we're in pre-production in Montgomery, and and we're just setting up a website now. Listen, my my mind has been on all these other things. I don't know. Listen, that's no excuse because Spike is a master at this stuff. Man, he's like this all the time with uh, with with. I guess it's Instagram and tweeting these yeah, days. Yeah, yeah.
2: Well, uh, I, I tell you what. We're going to put a link to your IMDb page on our show notes so people can find you there and people can, can see what you're working on. And uh, we'll follow up with you too. And when there's an update for your new project, we'll, we'll add that there as well. So, oh, great,
0: great, great. Hey, thank you so much for uh, coming you. on the show. Thank it was, you. It was really great. Yeah, my pleasure. Real fun. Thank you.
1: And now, short ends. All right, so that was Barry Alexander Brown. That was awesome. And maybe we should get some more editors on here. Definitely get some more editors on here.
2: It's it's wonderful to uh, get another perspective on all Looking this. Looking at you, Augie Hess.
1: <laughs> Good friend, Augie Hess. He's an amazing editor. Worked with, uh, worked with William Friedkin on a bunch of films. We should get yeah, him in here. We'll definitely get him in here. It would be great. All right, so uh, Ben, short end time. All right, so my short end uh, this time is, uh, I, I have to say, uh, Netflix keeps killing it in the documentary world, and um, uh, I I happened upon a documentary directed by Joe Berlinger, a documentary series directed by Joe Berlinger called uh, "Conversations with a Killer: The Ted Bundy Tapes," uh, and it is amazing. I, I I can't say enough good things about it. I mean, it's not uh, the thing you say good things about. It's Ted Bundy. You know <laughs> what can you say about an actual psychopath? Um, but it's so well done. Made for some good television. It, 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 eventually, yes. Um, and even though I grew up in Florida, which is where uh, some of Bundy's crimes happened and where he was executed, I remember the day he was executed. I really didn't know the story very well at all. And they had. Uh, it's a, mostly centers around a journalist who got to sit down with Ted Bundy when he was in jail in Florida, basically on death row and did some very candid interviews with him. And he kind of talks about the mind games Bundy played with him. And so there's extensive interviews with uh, with that person. Uh, the DP on it is a guy named uh, Adam Stone who also shot Wild Wild Country. I'm assuming since most of his, there's a lot of archival stuff in this, that uh, the DP primarily shot the interviews. And the interviews look phenomenal. And it's just kind of an, it's one of those edge of your seat kind of true crime stories. Some people have said that it sensationalizes Ted Bundy. Um, I, I've, read, I've read some criticisms that were kind of harsh on it. But honestly, I found that it, 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 I mean, there's no even-handed way to handle Ted Bundy. The guy was guilty and he was terrible and he managed to escape from j- the same jail twice. Like all kinds of crazy things. And he's everything that's wrong with humanity all at once. I don't think it uh, glamorizes him in any way. I think, if anything, it, it kind of draws attention to what it's like to deal with a psychopath, and uh, especially when that psychopath is intelligent and charming and able to get away with stuff that uh, most of us uh, normies in the world uh, would not attempt. Sounds terrifying. It's it's really well made. And it's Joe Berlinger who made, you know, Paradise Lost films and uh, Brother's Keeper. And uh, he's he's just the one- new Sundance movie. Uh, well, yeah, he made he he's made two narrative films. One was Book of Shadows, Blair Witch Two, and the other <laughs> one was the new movie about uh, Ted Bundy. Uh, hopefully, that will do better than Book of Shadows. But uh, uh, I have no doubt it's you, got Zac Efron in it. But you can't say. I mean, honestly, there are two documentarians, him and Errol Morris, who I know for a fact got somebody who was incorrectly convicted of a crime out of jail and in the case of joe berlinger and his uh his now deceased partner bruce sanofsky they got three the west memphis three they got three innocent men out of prison for a murder that they didn't commit and they were all in jail for uh, over a decade oh my god
2: yeah for forever so, it's, it's an incredible story so
1: it's interesting to see him kind of hop onto the other side with someone who like could not be more guilty and it's a fascinating ride and i can't recommend it highly enough
2: Wow, okay. Uh, my short end this week is the Sundance Film Festival.
1: Oh, it's a thing we both know a thing or two about.
2: Yeah, uh, I just went. It was, you just went. It,
1: uh, well, it, let's be clear though, uh, and we're doing a series of Sundance specials. You went and saw a bunch of movies and interviewed people and did stuff. I was there for one day.
2: You know what? but you went.
1: No, the important thing is that I walked down Main Street and then I went into the Egyptian Theater. But I I went there for, uh, and we reiterate this later, the 20th anniversary of the Blair Witch Project, which I was the production designer on. Um, So I primarily went there, felt super old, and left.
2: Okay, so uh, I went there, was really cold, uh, drank. a little bit and then networked with a bunch of people and did some good interviews. And those interviews. Great will, interviews. You, okay. can't, you can't
1: toot your own horn, man. There's some phenomenal interviews. Okay, great So work.
2: there's some really great interviews. And uh, Okay, toot your own horn. And, uh, and then Alana did a great interview as well, too. And we're going to have all that coming up. But my sort of obsession with the festival is in how it has grown, matured, and just improved over the years changed
1: with the times really it it
2: is and they continue to redefine what a premier film festival in the u.s is year after year after year and it's like hey there are some other great festivals and i'm thinking of like telluride and south by but
1: the tribeca tribeca the king of berlin
2: no that's not in the u.s
1: Oh, I thought you just said festivals. <laughs> yeah, you well, know,
2: festivals in the U.S. They, they. I mean, I'm not taking anything away from Toronto, Berlin, can other amazing festivals around the world. But for an American festival, Sundance is like that's the place. That no, is no, the it's,
1: it's it's the biggest one by far in America.
2: Uh, and I'm gonna give you a couple of tips. My little tips for like surviving Sundance. Number one, comfortable shoes. You gotta have comfortable, mm-hmm. comfortable shoes. A lot of walking around. You also have to be aware that the black ice there is a killer. And I almost. I almost look forward to it every time I go there. At one point I slip and fall and I see a whole lot of other people slip and fall. It is like a rite of passage to go to Sundance. At some point it's like, oh, I got out of that Uber.
1: There's a big patch of black ice. I didn't see it. I'm on my butt. I slipped a bunch, but I didn't fall. But again, I was only there for one day.
2: Well, you know, had it been a little later at night, had you been intoxicated. And I would never be intoxicated. Th- th- then, that, then it would have happened. I'm sure, though. Had, had, had. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so uh, here's the other tip. Start planning early. That means booking your travel before they actually announce anything that's going to be there. As soon as things are announced, that's when it's impossible to get a flight, impossible to find a place. Well, you can prices go up. Prices go way up, and it's like, and I'm I'm, I'll mention this again, but a town of seventy eight hundred people becomes like seventy eight thousand people or something like that. It's rough. It goes up ten times, and so. All everyone is fighting over the same things. Here is my other sort of like pro tip for people out there: if you can't be close to the center of town, like where the main transit terminal is, if you can't be close to like where most of the main action is, where people want to be, because you can't afford it or there's nothing available, pick a place where there is something going on. Because there's a whole lot of places out there where you're just in the sticks. You're not near anything. You're not near food. You're not. Yeah, near, that's where I was. You're not. You're not near a a. Uh, screening place of any sort and there's no theaters. There's a couple places out there that which are often overlooked like Kimball Junction. Kimball Junction is a 15 minute car ride. But guess what? You're next to food. You're next to theaters where they're showing festival stuff. Uh, There's all kinds of things that will help you being a little bit outside of the place, but near other things. So
1: you know, like once you're in Park City, there are free uh, shuttles that take you everywhere.
2: There's free shuttles that go out to Kimball Junction. There's free shuttles that go everywhere, but you're a little bit more uh, held at the mercy of their schedule. But now in the era of Lyft and Uber, and Lyft was, I think, a huge sponsor this year. They had a couple of, like, Lyft pickup drop-off zones. Really, it's not that difficult to get around. Acura was also doing
1: uh, taxis. I, I, I used Uber a lot when I was there, and I, I'm like, how did I get around here? And actually, I know the answer is I drove from L.A. to Park City twice. <laughs> I got around in my own car, but parking there is impossible now. So I wouldn't recommend renting a car or anything like that. I would recommend using transportation. You can get there the whole time.
2: I'm going to agree. Avoid renting a car. That, that That's going to be some people's impulse, but uh, you'll pay – A fortune in parking Uh, i saw signs for parking for seventy dollars yeah so that's uh, yeah yeah
1: not it's no bueno but yeah definitely i and if i may add on to your short end uh layer like wear lots of layers
2: yeah a couple of layers for sure i i think that a very comfortable coat because yeah uh really it's going to be 30s to maybe high 40s during the day if you're lucky and at night, ooh, it got down into like uh, it got down into like
1: the low teens. Like, but, but then you go into a movie theater and it's it's not just warm, it's usually hot. And so you're going from hot to cold to hot to cold to hot to cold. And that's why a lot of people get sick. This is why I'm suggesting layering so that you can take stuff off when you go into the theater.
2: Yes, and I would say be prepared to make instant adjustments when you are going inside or outside. And if you wear glasses like I do, be prepared for your glasses to fog up immediately when you go in from the, the cold to someplace really warm.
1: You're like, all the movies had this really weird fog film on them.
2: <laughs> Bring a chamois. You'll want to clear, clean your glasses. So, <laughs> also, uh, any exposed surface of your body probably going to get cold. So gloves, scarf. Don't 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 mess around. Just take take all the things that you need to cover yourself. <laughs> so, without exception, every year I see someone out there dressed wildly inappropriate. And they look very miserable.
1: I, I mean, like, I'm always wrapped up, you know, like, I, like seriously, with every piece of clothes that I have on all at once, and I'm still usually freezing.
2: Oh, also bring cash because uh, the price of movies has gone up again, and I think it's like 25 bucks a movie now, too. So if you're doing the, doing the waitlist thing and having to hand over a 20 and a 5, just be prepared. Oof. All right, so so Ben, uh, that just about does it. Let's thank uh, all the people who made this show happen.
1: Well, first and foremost, we want to thank Alana Cody for uh, being an amazing producer and for working her ass off to eh, get all this okay. stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Alana has moved into also conducting interviews. You'll you'll get to hear an interview that she conducted during our Sundance.
2: Special. I'm sure there'll be more. So. Uh, Thank you, Kays, for, of course, the wonderful music, musicbykays.com.
1: Yes, go there. Uh, Just say anything to Kays that you heard him on our podcast and you like his music. It'll make his day. You could even call him names. Please call him names. Tell him I said to do it. And then, of course,
2: our fantastic editorial staff, uh, Benjamin Katz and Abby Corbett.
1: Thank you both, uh, Ben and Abby.
2: Ben, where can people find you?
1: Uh, go to Twitter, and I am at Neptune Salad. And then, if you just look me up, ben, BenRockOnline.com. That's uh, that's my website, and you can probably find all my social stuff there.
2: I'm at Hot Rod Cameras, uh, HotRodCameras.com. Uh, we sell stuff. You can also find me on the Instagrams at Ilya Friedman.
1: So thank you very much, and look forward immediately to our 2019 Sundance Special Series, which has got some amazing interviews that uh, were conducted by Ilya and one by Alana. <laughs> So, thank you very much, and we will see you here. Who do we have on episode 32? Uh, Robbie Ryan will be on episode 32. Academy Award nominated cinematographer Robbie Ryan.
2: Of the favorite. Yes, he will be here.
1: All right. See you then.
0: This has been the Cinematography Podcast.